This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Over the decades, there have been some very high-profile investigative panels that have looked into national and political crises. The Kefauver Committee famously looked into organized crime. The Warren Commission in the early 60s investigated the Kennedy assassination. And the Senate held its Watergate hearings, which led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. And yet, arguably, none of those committees has had to tackle a political emergency as profound as the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The basic contours of what happened at the Capitol have never really been in doubt, yet the select committee had fundamental questions it needed to answer. Was Trump's inaction during the rioting a failure of leadership or a real strategy, a way of fomenting chaos to retain power? Were groups like the Oath Keepers just a bunch of angry white nationalists, or were they in fact the armed vanguard of a coup? The committee has just released its official report, and The New Yorker is publishing it in book form, partnering with Celadon Books. The report is comprehensive, let's say, long in other words, and taking in every ugly detail of Trump's attempt to delegitimize this election is honestly a challenge to the spirit. But as one member of the committee, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, told me, the committee's work here was to establish a definitive historical record, and the rest is up to the Justice Department and the courts. One thing is clear from this report. We cannot afford to look away. Democracy remains under attack. And as I wrote in the introduction to the volume, a citizenry that can no longer bring itself to pay attention to such an investigation or to absorb its astonishing findings risks moving even farther toward a post-truth, post-democratic America. We have more about the January 6th report at newyorker.com slash report. Now, you might think that 2017 was an inauspicious time to become the Poet Laureate. The country was still reeling from the most divisive election in memory, at least until the next one. So what was poetry going to do about it? All the while, Tracy K. Smith decided not to keep a low profile. When she was appointed Poet Laureate, she wanted to engage with the American people, as many of us as she possibly could. 
Smith appeared in front of audiences everywhere from senior homes to prisons. She estimates that she traveled one to two nights per week for two years, and at the same time she put together a collection of topical poems called American Journal that she read from while on the road. Here's Tracy K. Smith reading one of those poems by Joy Harjo, a poet from the Muscogee Creek Nation, who also succeeded Tracy as Poet Laureate. The poem's title is simply, No. Yes, that was me, you saw, shaking with bravery with a government-issued rifle on my back. I'm sorry I could not greet you as you deserved, my relative. They were not my tears. I have a reservoir inside. They will be cried by my sons, my daughters, if I can't learn how to turn tears to stone. Yes, that was me, standing in the back door of the house in the alley with fresh corn and bread for the neighbors. I did not foresee the flood of blood, how they would forget our friendship, would return to kill the babies and me. Yes, that was me, whirling on the dance floor. We made such a racket with all that joy. I loved the whole world in that silly music. I did not realize the terrible dance in the staccato of bullets. Yes, I smelled the burning grease of corpses, and like a fool, I expected our words might rise up and jam the artillery in the hands of dictators. We had to keep going. We sang our grief to clean the air of turbulent spirits. Yes, I did see the terrible black clouds as I cooked dinner and the messages of the dying spelled there in the ashy sunset. Everyone addressed mother. There was nothing about it in the news. Everything was the same. Unemployment was up. Another queen crowned with flowers. Then there were the sports scores. Yes, the distance was great between your country and mine. Yet our children played in the path between our houses. No, We had no quarrel with each other. Tracy K. Smith reading Joy Harjo's poem, No. In 2018, while she was Poet Laureate, Smith sat down with the New Yorker's poetry editor, Kevin Young. So I love that line, we made such a racket with all that joy. Yeah. Racket's a good word for, you know, what what we are producing right now. Um, I read this poem in Alaska in the tundra, uh, which is a region that is accessible by small plane. A lot of um, native Alaskan communities are accessible along rivers by um, boat. Um, In the winter, you can drive across the river. So it was great to engage with Joy Harjo's work there. Um, How great. Tell us about the project for those who might not know already. Uh, well, it, it's called American Conversations, Celebrating Poems in Rural Communities. And it involved traveling to small communities in different parts of the country where there isn't a college or a reading series and having readings. I'd read some of my own work and talk about it. But mostly I handed out copies of this little anthology, American Journal, and um, we would read it. I felt in some ways like hymnal, you know, like, let's turn to page 68 and see what we find here. Um, I'd read a poem, I'd ask somebody else in the audience to reread it so we could hear it in a different way. And then the conversation sort of just got started. 
what made you want to do this travel? I mean, you could have just stayed and uh, written poems in that beautiful <laughs> space of the Library of Congress or wherever you felt. Um, what, what made you want to go out there? Uh, well, I'd been thinking a lot about the national conversation um, and how it's characterized by a really awful sense of division, um, this, this shrill kind of railing against um, one another based on our differing perspectives. And I'd been saying to myself, poetry could help us get past that. I bet if somebody would start a reading series where they went, you know, brought poets from one part of the country to another, poetry could get past that, that sense of a divide. And then I got this call asking if I wanted to serve in the position. And I said, I do. I know exactly what I want to do. I want to I want to test out this theory. And it sounds like that worked well. I mean, you went how many different places? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, the official trips from the Library of Congress, I think there were eight, maybe nine, including Puerto Rico. Um, and within each of those states that we visited, there were three different or four locations. Um, but I also, because I'd been talking so publicly about this desire, I got a lot of in- invitations from rural communities. And so I, I, I was traveling probably every single week, wow. you know, one or two nights. And it was exhausting and exhilarating, but it was probably the best thing that I could have done as an American because I felt so worried sitting home and listening to the news and so confident that we'll figure this out when I was out there meeting people and and just listening. We're listening to Tracy K. Smith in conversation with Kevin Young. We'll continue in just a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Uh, 
What are some of your most vivid memories of it? There are different kinds, um, and some of them have to do with the types of settings. So there were the public events that we did, and in each place there was a kind of a curated event, so something in a retirement home or a um, rehab facility. I visited a women's prison in Maine and talking with women there about how poems gave them a new language for describing themselves to themselves. Um, Then there was another experience in a home for veterans and pioneers in Alaska, people who had been part of the homestead movement. Um, And I went in and I had the anthology and I started by talking a little bit about why I love poetry. There was one person who was really, um, really talking with me, responding to the poems. And then I noticed that hardly anybody else was talking. Sometimes we'd read a poem and then I'd hear somebody just kind of moan or somebody might, you know, just clap or something, but there wasn't a conversation. And I was thinking, am I bombing here? What's going on? Are these poems not speaking to people? And then afterward, um, some of the caretakers came up and said, this was incredible. A lot of the people in this room are members of the Alzheimer's ward, and they're nonverbal. And to hear some of them making noises or moving their bodies was incredible. Um, And that was, I don't know how to explain how powerful that was for me. It affirmed that poems, they call to something that's deep within us. And there are many, many different ways of answering that. That's incredibly powerful. I'm getting chills just thinking about that. Um, I understand in South Carolina, you visited Somerton High School, which was integrated as part of the Brown v. Board uh, desegregation ruling, the the decision from 1954. Uh, What was that visit like? Did that have a particular resonance? It was really uh, moving because many of the people in the audience were alumni, I also happened to be reading a number of poems that that weren't rooted in the history of desegregation, but um, Civil War poems that also spoke to questions of race and and America. So talking about those poems in a place where people had lived through this this really monumental chapter of history was meaningful. Is there part of that Civil War piece that you might share with us? Sure. So the long sequence is called I Will Tell You the Truth About This. I will tell you all about it. And it's a poem that's made up entirely of letters and deposition statements by black soldiers and veterans of the Civil War and their family members. This is one section that um, I think of as a chorus. It's made up of many voices excerpted. Excellent, sir. My son went in the 54th Regiment. Sir, my husband, who is in Company K, 22nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, and now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. Sir, we, the members of Company D of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteers, call the attention of Your Excellency to our case. For instant, look and see that we never was freed yet. Run right out of slavery, in to soldiery, and we hadn't nothing at all. 
and our wives and mother, most all of them, is a perishing all about. And we all are perishing ourselves. I am willing to be a soldier and serve my time faithful like a man. But I think it is hard to be put off in such doggish manner as that. Will you see that the colored men fighting now are fairly treated? You ought to do this and do it at once, not let the thing run along, meet it quickly and manfully. We poor oppressed ones appeal to you and ask fair play. Wow. I could listen to that all day. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, there's a line that I loved that you read, for instant. Much better saying than yeah. for instance. Uh, and I love that kind of uh, play with language yeah. that you also are capturing in the pleas. There's so many of those. There's one. The one that made me realize that I didn't need to write over these voices with my own was a mother who wrote to Abraham Lincoln, and she said, you know, my son is gone. He was the only help I had. Now I am old, and my head is blossoming for the grave. Wow. That <laughs> wow. That's powerful. What more could you could you want? I think there's something in the work, both that you've done as poet laureate, but also in your own work, giving voice is the wrong word, but, but you know, singing through history. And how do you think about history in your own work and then in your work as a poet laureate? For me, history um, is a way of trying to make better sense of the present. I feel like history is hot on our trails. <laughs> All the things that used to feel when I was younger like they lived in newsreels and you know chapters from, right. from books they feel like they've woken up and they're present and they're telling us you haven't solved me this isn't over and so turning to history right now for me is a way of saying what can i learn that somehow um we've overlooked you know well said I think that for me, your American Journal, the anthology you did, um, sort of speaks to that very question of sort of talking about now, but thinking about history. Tell us what you were thinking when you were making it. Yeah, well, it's American Journal is a, it's a 50 poem anthology. It includes one poem each by 50 different living American poets. And um, I wanted to gather up voices that might be helpful to me on these trips. I didn't want to just be talking about my own work. I wanted to be a reader with others. And so I said, well, there, there are poems that are new, that speak to life as we are currently experiencing it from place to place, perspective to perspective, that could be really useful. Um, I wanted poems that could meet someone where they are, that wouldn't feel um, intimidating. And, you know, I think... The, the sense of 50 voices felt so small, <laughs> but I wanted to celebrate the range of yeah. voices and traditions here in America. I wanted this whole project, which is about exploring America, to acknowledge that there are many Americas and they need not be exclusive of one another or there's no hierarchy that we need to um, respect. Were there other things that came about? from the anthology for you? Um, had you done an anthology before? I had before? never done an anthology before, and I, I 
realized that I had to write a, an introduction. That was one of the first um, acts of <laughs> as, I, as poet laureate that I did. Even like, though, oops. <laughs> even though I'm not just picking. I'm, yeah. Well, I happen to have some language from that uh, <laughs> introduction where you say uh, it is an offering for people who love poems the way I do. It is also an offering for those who love them in different ways and those who don't yet know what their relationship with poetry will be. I hope there is even something here to please readers who, for whatever the reason, might feel themselves to be at odds with poetry. These 50 poems welcome you to listen and be surprised, amused, consoled, for the time that you are reading them, and even after, these poems will collapse the distance between you and 50 real or imagined people with 50 different outlooks on the human condition. I mean, that's beautifully said. Um, I hope you write a book about poetry because oh. you're so good about talking about what it means and what it's up to. I'd love to read that book, too. Oh, wow. I want to end with you know where your work is headed what you know all of this it sounds like has changed sort of your own work I feel I haven't written I've written one poem (laughs) this whole time (laughs) (laughs) I am thinking now that what I'd really like to do is just take some time to reflect on these two years which have been so packed and surprising and and instructive and consoling and um, I need to sort of go I think by way of prose into those questions a little bit more and talk about America and what poetry has to do with it. I hope that's the next project that I dig into. And then I I also want to trust that there's some poems waiting for me (laughs) as well. Sure. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Tracy K. Smith spoke with Kevin Young in 2018 while she was serving as Poet Laureate of the United States. Kevin Young, in addition to being the New Yorker's poetry editor, is director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Tracy read one more poem for us from her collection, Wade in the Water. The poem is set in Texas, and it's called Hill Country. He comes down from the hills, from the craggy rock, the shrubs, the scrawny live oaks and dried-up junipers down from the cloud bellies and the bellies of hawks, from the caracaras stalking carcasses, from the clear, sun-smacked soundlessness that shrouds him, from the weathered bed of planks outside the cabin where he goes to be alone with his questions. God comes down along the road with his windows unrolled so the twigs and hanging vines can slap and scrape against him in his jeep. Down past the buck, caught in the hog trap that kicks and heaves, bloodied, blinded by the whiff of its own death, which God, thank God, staves off. He downshifts, crosses the shallow trickle of river that only just last May scoured the side of the canyon to rock, gets out, walks along the limestone bank, castor beans, cactus, scat of last night's coyotes. Down below the hilltops, he squints out at shadow, tree backing tree, dark depth the eye glides across, not bothering to decipher what it hides. A pair of dragonflies mate in flight, 
tiny flowers throw frantic color at his feet. If he tries, if he holds his mind in place and wills it, he can almost believe in something larger than himself, rearranging the air. He squints at the jeep, glaring in bright sun, stares a while at patterns the tall branches cast onto the undersides of leaves. Then God climbs back into the cab, returning to everywhere. Tracy K. Smith reading Hill Country. Her latest collection, Such Color, came out in 2021. I'm David Remnick. I hope you have a terrific holiday and the best for the new year. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado. This episode was produced by Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofan and Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Mike Kutchman, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.